Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. I'm Bela Musitz, the David D. Ray Professor at the School of Business at Clarkson University. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Business at the Münster School of Business in the Münster University of Applied Sciences in, no surprise, Münster, Germany. And today's guest is uh, Kat Coppett. Uh, boy, Mike, what, a, what an interesting background she had, huh? Agreed. Uh, talk about an unconventional path. I think uh, this is the definition. Yeah, I found that it was just fascinating the way that she wound her way through being a theater major and wanting to be an actress uh, on Broadway uh, and morph that into a business. It's a real uh, example of taking your passion and being able to turn it into how you make a living. Uh, I True. thought it was one, one of the best examples of that I've seen in a long, long time. True. And I like the fact she had two businesses with two different business models and two revenue streams, but with the common core of her passion at the center of both businesses. Yeah. So with that, uh, let's just dive right into this. Um, and then we'll uh, see you at the back end of this with uh, some additional wrap up and comments. Uh, but let me also mention one other thing. Uh, Mike and I have been talking and we'd like to try something uh, relatively new. And that is responding to listener questions. So if you have a question about entrepreneurship or starting a business or innovation or any general business topic, uh, send it into our email address and uh, we will respond in one of our episodes. So just send it to bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And of course, I'd like to thank Clarkson University for uh, supporting this podcast as a uh, well as Mike. Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. Oh, I'll thank the Munster University of Applied Sciences for su- allowing me to do this as a little side endeavor. Perfect. Let's get into the uh, conversation with Kat Coppett. Hello, folks. This is Bela. And today I'm here with our guest who has a really interesting business. When I read about this, I was really intrigued on how she has taken improv theater and married it with uh, management training. So uh, I think this will be a wonderful podcast. Uh, So welcome, Kat. Hi. Nice to meet you in person. So let me ask you my first question. If you were uh, at a cocktail party and someone walks up to you and you do the normal introductions, which is typically, you know, your name and what you do, how would you answer that? We have two businesses. One is easy. It's an improvisational theater company called Mopco. We do improv theater. The other is an applied improvisation organizational development company. The way we describe that is we help people expand their performance range and awareness on any stage that isn't a stage, a literal stage. Excellent. Excellent. And so the one piece that you didn't say was your name. My name is Kat Coppett. Perfect. I always like to have, I always like to have individuals pronounce it and say it because it takes the pressure off of me to get have to pronounce it correctly. Kat Coppett, like stop it. Excellent. Excellent. So before we dive into those two businesses and sort of talk about what they do yeah. uh, in more detail, let's go back uh, to the early years, as I like yeah. to say. So where did you grow up? I was born in New York City, and when I was about eight years old, I moved to Palo Alto, California, before it was Palo Alto, mm-hmm. and then I bounced back and forth between those two places. Oh, wow. I went to college and grad school in New York. Excellent. And uh, so how long did you live in California? So from 8 to 17, I grew up in Palo Alto, and then after grad school, I moved back out to the Bay Area and lived there for another eight or nine years until um, until I moved back here upstate. So quite a range there, New York City to Palo Alto. Palo Alto's not the big city, but it's bigger than upstate New York. Yeah. So... Having lived in only New York City and the San Francisco Bay Area, I realized moving here that I was pretty provincial. (laughs) I only, you know, I thought those were the only places interesting, smart people lived, Mm -hmm. you know. And then when I moved here, 
uh, I the w- whole world opened up to me. Yeah, that that uh, ability and curiosity to have that diversity of experience, mm-hmm. that life experience, I think is really important. It really broadens our perspective on on our world. Yeah, I, I really think that um, you know, in some ways, that. It, it sounds like the reverse, you know, the typical, stereotypical story is the other way. You move from the small town to the big city to have your eyes open. I'm really aware that it was the opposite for me. I I, I travel all over the world now for business, and I, I really think that it was only when I moved here that I really started to appreciate everywhere that I went. Yes, you yes. Know? So, uh, typical childhood any anything special happen? You know, I I no longer know what typical means. My my father was a sports writer for the New York Times. Oh wow! Yeah, he was great. And uh, there's a sort of niche demographic to whom he is well known, and um, and that was great. So we would um, spend our spring breaks at spring training with him down in Florida, and then later when we moved out to the West Coast. Uh, in Arizona. That's how we got out there. He convinced them they needed a West Coast correspondent back when the Oakland A's and the Oakland Raiders were doing well. Um, So that was fun. And he also introduced me to the theater. He had lots of friends in the theater. Um, Other than that, I was a sort of, you know, typical New York City kid. Yes. I was exposed to lots of theater and museums and culture and got a gift of a wonderful education. Yeah, so it was your parents who sort of exposed you to the theater and, and that that sort of creative piece of it. My father was a, a, a great sort of typical 19th, 20th century age of enlightenment intellectual um, and uh, happened to live in a, he, he was born in Russia he came here with his family when he was five. Mm-hmm. Uh, could have gone into music. Uh, said he became a sports writer instead of a. Uh, he he. One of the things he taught me was to do something that you love and that you enjoy, and said that he didn't become a a musician or a reviewer of music and theater because he liked them too much as as enjoyment and sort of take the fun out of it. But he lived in a building in his youth as a young adult on 55th Street that had a lot of uh, Broadway gypsies in it and mm-hmm. had a lot of friends in the theater. So he introduced me that, to that world. My mom was an English teacher. So there was a lot of love of that yes. in our house. Well, ju- just the way uh, you were talking about your father and, and seeing the, the twinkle in your eye, I, yeah. could, I could tell there's really fond memories of that. Oh, he was he was truly an amazing man. Uh, I don't know if this is still true, but uh, at one point uh, when he died, he was at that point, I think the only uh, person in both the baseball and basketball halls of fame. Oh wow! Yeah, he, he was in the writers' wing of the hall, baseball hall of fame, and um, he's a he was a pretty well respected sort of. Um, Baseball writer, and he was an, a writer, really. Yes. And a, it's in the heyday yeah. of sort of sports writers yes, in the yes. newspaper age. Yeah. And, and just a lovely, sweet man. At some point, he became a, the editor-in-chief of a paper in California, and then the editor emeritus of that paper, and spent a lot of time just writing editorials and holding court, pontificating yeah. about the world. I don't know what he would say these days, but... Um, about the state of our world these days. But he was just a very kind, gentle, and uh, wise man. It, it, is, it is remarkable, uh, sort of, and it shouldn't be a surprise, but it's still remarkable to me every time how much influence our parents have on who we become and our values and sort of what we do and the whole motivation thing. It's just, it's remarkable to me. Yeah, I... I suppose it's not surprising. I mean, where yeah, else it's not surprising, get? but yeah. it's just remarkable. But it is remarkable, yeah. and um, I wonder about it. You know, my mother was the sort of activist fighter in the family, and and sometimes I think we sold her short mm-hmm. uh, because we revered my 
my father so much. In talking about entrepreneurship, I think it was my mother who sort of had the ambition. My father was, what, what I think I got from my father was this value around really doing something you loved and building a life around your passion and around what you enjoyed. And one of the things I think I had to learn that he didn't, that he didn't have to do so much was the fighting part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the sort of ambition and uh, assertiveness that you need to be yes. to build your own business. Yes. And uh, went to college? Me? Yes, you. I'm yes. sorry. Yes. It wasn't a clear <laughs> Me question. Or him? Uh, yes. I, uh, I actually left high school a year early because I was so clear that I wanted to be an actor and really because I wanted to run back to New York City. Mm-hmm. I missed it. So I left high school a year early and went to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts to their Bachelor of Fine Arts program was there for a couple of years and actually left to go to a conservatory program through NYU and then went back and got my BFA finished up. And then ultimately went to graduate school and got a master's in organizational psychology. So what's a conservatory program? How does that different from... Yeah, uh, so it was... uh, How was the conservatory different from the bachelor's program? Really, what it meant was I, they weren't doing any academics. It was all just theater and acting. I see. It's all practice of the yes, art. that's right. Not studying the art in a formal way. That's practice right. Practice of the art. So to get sort of down into the nuts and bolts of it, the way NYU's program works is you had academics at NYU, and then they partnered with, I think this is still how Tisch does it, they partnered with studio programs around the city that were intact programs within just acting schools, yes. various ones within the city. So I was at Circle in the Square, which is a Broadway theater that had a conservatory program of their own, and they partnered with NYU yes. as one of a sub-program. So I left the NYU program and went to their professional school for a couple of years to do that program because uh, I just thought it was better or somehow would be more stimulating, and um, and then went back and finished up my academics at yes. NYU. And so after graduation, after graduate school, what happened next? Well, in between my uh, undergraduate program and my graduate school, there was a lot of starving actor years. So what I actually did was finish up NYU and circle, uh, hit the pavement, starve as an actor for a while, got my equity card, which is your union card as an actor. And it was at that time that I discovered improv, improvisation, mostly for a couple of reasons. One was uh, because in the, in the American theater, mostly you're on your own, just spending your life looking for work. We don't really have a repertory theater system here at mm-hmm. all, like we might in Russia or England, and uh, with the exception of improv. You know, improv companies, you audition for a company, and then you get to create your own roles, and you're part of a company that's producing shows in an ongoing way. So I think socially, I really liked that. The other reason was um, my, you know, I, I grew up in this sort of New York Jewish hyper-intellectual family, and my weakness as an actor was that I was, well, what I was told by my acting teachers was that my weakness was I was too smart, whatever that meant, or I think what they meant was I was too much in my head. And improv was a way of learning to trust my impulses and not censor myself so much and loosen up, uh, trust trust myself and focus on my partners, not myself, and not worry so much about getting things right. So those were the reasons I discovered improv. And a couple of things happened in the eight or so years between undergraduate school and graduate school. One was that uh, I 
my day job was teaching English as a second language to Russian immigrants mm -hmm. at a refugee relocation organization. And I started to get promoted there. So I started training teachers. I was teaching ESL, then I was training teachers, then I was supervising trainers. So I started to get organizational development experience inside that organization. The other was, as I was working with improv, my improv company, I was starting to teach improv, and people were starting to, my students in the improv classes were starting to come to me and say, you know, these principles and techniques of improv are awesome, and I wish my boss knew them, or I wish my team at work worked the way our ensemble here in class was working. Would you come and teach a class? And because I had this training experience in my day job, yes. the company, my improv company, sent me to sort of head up the team building workshops that we were being asked to do for companies. And I said, okay, I'll do that. Partly, partly skeptically, but, you know, I was a starving actor and sure. companies had right, money right, right. and whatever. Uh, so... I did that. I started to do that. And then, and that's why I went back to grad school, because I was like, okay, well, is there really something here? I didn't just want to be selling snake oil. Yes. I wanted to. Yes. And so that's how that happened. So let me just go back uh, yeah. a little bit. So uh, that's a lot. So in, in when you're in, um, in, in at university yeah. or at the conservatory, yeah. is, is there an, an elective for improv? No. So you weren't exposed to that That's at all? That's a great question. Back, it is amazing in the last, oh, however many years it's been, the, the, the growth of improv in our world is astonishing mm -hmm. in, in the 30 years since I started doing it. When I was in acting school, the... The division between scripted theater, legitimate theater, and improv was almost exclusive. So we had a little bit of improv process uh, in some of our technique classes, but only as sort of experiential process as part of a rehearsal for scripted theater. There was no improv performance at all, and people who used who did improvisational performance were completely looked down on. It was something that was in the circle of comedy. They were not looked at as legitimate actors at all. I it was a completely separate thing. And it was not part of our curriculum. That's not true anymore, mm -hmm. but it was true at the time. Yes, yes. I discovered improv. The way I was exposed to it was I was in a, a theater company sort of an exception to what I was saying about repertory companies. I was in a company called the Manhattan Stage Company with a number of folks, uh, some of them from Syracuse University, some of them from Purchase, including a guy you may have heard of named Aaron Sorkin, mm -hmm. who went on to have a pretty good he career. He did okay for himself. He did all right for himself. Um, for your listeners who may not know, he was the creator of West Wing and some other things. Uh, and... One of the members of that company had a connection to an, a, an improviser in a company called Chicago City Limits, which was one of the first big companies in New York, who came to do a master class with us. Uh -huh. And that's how you got into it. And yeah, that connection. Yeah, we took this master class, and she said, "Hey, you're you know you're pretty good at this." Mostly, what I was good at, I think, in that first moment was following the rules. <laughs> that she was giving us. Inside your head, you had those rules. Yeah, but the rules, strangely, the rules were very freeing for me. Mm -hmm. The rules were things like, you know, accept what, you know, pay attention to your partner, accept what they're doing, and build on what they're giving you. Yes. And don't censor yourself. So sh what she gave me was this great gift of, rather than uh, having some story about being smart, being bad or just don't think, which is what my acting teachers were telling me. She was saying, here's a tool for bypassing your sensor, or here's a way to use what mm -hmm. you're thinking and accept it and build with it. She was giving me um, 
guidelines and exercises to help use my creativity as opposed to feeling shame around so, my impulses. So, so I, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer by training, so yeah. I, you know, I know nothing about acting. But it, it seems to me that, that being able to... I understand that improv's non-scripted. Yes. And other stuff is typically scripted. Yes. However, this ability to express yourself around the script, around yes. those words, and that freeing uh, freedom that you yes. talked about, right? That ability to not block it and say, this is how I should, I should read this line or deliver this line along with waving my arms or whatever else needs to be done, seems like it would be a valuable skill in, should I use the word traditional theater as well? Yeah, yeah. duh, <laughs> like, hello. You're absolutely right, which is why it is more and more being integrated into traditional theater training and those lines are being blurred. And uh, in fact, that tool of Mm -hmm. uh, many, many actors now go and get improv training uh, for all, all sorts of reasons. I mean, among other things, it's incredibly helpful at auditions. It's incredible. The, the skills that improvisers, the muscles that improvisers exercise yes. are skills that are applicable really for everyone. Of course, for actors, right? They're things about being loose, expanding your range of expression, connecting with your partner, receiving, getting better at listening and receiving information, right. responding right. to it comfortably and you know, trusting your impulses. Of course that's what actors do. It's also what good leaders have to do. It's also what good team members have to do. It's all, yeah. So let's go back to, um, you're in this improv group. Yes. And some of your students yes. have day jobs. Yes. And they say to you, gosh, I wish the people I worked with, yeah. had, you know, had these same type of relationships that we have here or interactions that we yeah. have here. So then you went and actually did a couple of classes for some corporate organizations? Yes. So talk about that a little bit. How'd that go at the beginning? I mean, yeah, you've never done that before, so what do you do? <laughs> right. So luckily, as I say, I'd, I'd had this experience teaching. Yes. Um, and so I had a little bit of experience just as a teacher and a facilitator. I knew how to design a class. I knew a little bit. I mean, now looking back, I'm like, oh, you know, I was making it up. But I knew a little bit about how to teach. I'd been teaching improv. I think the biggest difference between what I was doing then and what I do now was I was literally just teaching an improv class in an organization. I was transferring how to do improv into a business at a business setting. And frankly, there are a lot of practitioners in the world who are doing, quote, applied improv right now who are just doing that, right? If you go out and you hire an an improv company to come and do improv team building at your company, that might be what you get, is they take their improv class and they do it in your in your thing and they say okay now you know the principles of improv and they do a little conversation about so that's fine so I I can imagine that if I'm interested in learning about improv and I I sign up to take a class Mm -hmm. at an improv studio yeah uh, and that's sort of self-selecting I'm there because I want to be there I want to learn about this and I can imagine there's still challenges in getting people to exercise those muscles as you said and break down those barriers Mm -hmm. and let them let themselves uh, react in a in a uh, natural way, an uninhibited way. But you you walk into a corporation and the boss says, "All right, today at nine o'clock we're having an improv class," yeah. and people are going like, "What? What's right. going on?" So it's a totally different dynamic I, yes. for you as the instructor. Yes. In one situation, you're talking to people who want to be there, and now you're in a situation where some percentage of the people don't want to be there and are like sitting with their hands crossed going what the hell are we wasting our time doing this for that's right and i i think that and they're completely right to have that response right because um their time you have to prove that it's valuable to them so how do you talk about that how do you sort of approach that right because i think about i think about in any situation where an entrepreneur has 
has a brand new product yes. and people don't know what it is. Well, uh, the, I mean, you have to be able to answer the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Right. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. Well, I think it, I could talk about this all day. First of all, let me just say that it's the most important question is what's in it for me. And there isn't one answer, right? I mean, I think one of the things that we is incredibly important to us at Coppet is that we are always able to answer that question. And I think it's one of the things that differentiates us from just people who say, okay, we're going to do our improv class in your organization, mm-hmm. is that we are able, that we invest in being able to answer that question. And, and the answer to that question can be different for indi- it, every That's exactly what I was room. just going to say. Right. It's well, it's certainly different depending on the context of who the client hires us, and it's going to be different for every individual, potentially different for every individual in the room. So I can answer this question in many different ways. So at the top level, there are some general ways, and this is the sort of first level that I realized, there are some universal or very common ways that improv in general we've discovered, people helped us, our clients and our students helped us discover that improv tends to be of value to people that has nothing at all to do with wanting to be a performing improviser on a stage. So I can I can talk about a couple of those things. Another level of it is when an organization hires us, they usually have performance outcomes that have, again, have nothing to do with improvi- improvising around team alignment or customer service or leadership development or uh, building cultures of inclusion or presentation skills, you know, it's a very tactical one, that we talk to them about and say, what is it you actually want people to be able to do differently? And, And then we drive to, you know, create a design of a program that meets those objectives frankly, some of the work we do has nothing to do with improv, right? We, I also have a master's in organizational development. So if improv activities and principles aren't going to be the best way to meet those needs, then we don't use those tools. Just because we have a hammer and a screwdriver right, right. doesn't mean that those are necessarily the tools. If we need a saw, then we use a saw. Um, so so let, let me try something here. So let's say, let's say I'm a company CEO. Yeah. I have a 50-person business. Yeah. And... Uh, I dial up your phone yeah. and I say, hey, Kat, yeah. I was just on your website. I watched a couple of your videos. I'd like you to come in and, and do a session for us. Awesome. Tell me tell me what you, well, so I, I would ask you, tell me what you'd like to, what, did, what struck you? What did you like about the video? So I'll tell you what my problem is. Yeah. My problem is I don't think our sales organization is listening to customers properly. Mm, We're just trying to sell them what we have as opposed to listening and understanding. Okay, so let me just parse back what we did. So I had a a sort of choice point when you said, I saw your videos and I went. And I could have asked you the question you answered, which is, what do you want people to do differently? Or I could have asked you the question that I asked, which is, what do you like what did you like about the video? And I asked you, what did you like about the video first? Because what you said to me is, I watched your videos and I liked them. Yes. Um, that's the only, the reason I asked that question is because that's what you said. If you just called me up and said, hey, I want to talk to you, I would have asked you that first question first. I'm just parsing the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the question you answered is way more important question, right? Um, so I just wanted to sort of name that, that your question about what, what are your people doing and what do, I want, what do you want them to do differently is the really important question. So yes. let's go with that. Um, what I might have found out if you said, what did you like about the video, is a million things. You might have said, it was entertaining. Um, I really like the yes and principle. Either way, we're going to circle back around to the important thing, which is, what, are, what do you want people to be doing differently at the end? So most of your clients are looking for some sort of behavioral change. They better be. If they're not, I'm going to try to coach them to get to that. What often happens is people don't know what they want people to do differently. They'll say, we want team building. We want leadership development. Sometimes people come and say, we just want to have a good fun time out, mm-hmm. which is also fine, right? We want to have an off-site where we want to entertain people and give them a great day off. And sometimes... <laughs> 
between you, me, and the lamppost. I want to drive towards behavioral change, and they don't want that. They want to come to us for entertainment, yes. which is fine. And um, and when that's the case, often I say like, come to you know, come do it on the Mopco sort of uh, improv theater side because yes. you know, not that we're not entertaining. But. And are these are these. Uh Half a day workshops? Half a day. Uh, week-long workshop? Everything from, you know, 90 minutes to week-long workshops. Really, a lot of what we do is very customized. Wow. Do you, do you, I mean, so, so let's say, so say, the, I want to show you a little bit about where it would go. So let's say, so what did you say? You want your people to do I what? I said, I think our, our salespeople are not yeah. listening to our customers. Ah, good. So, so tell me a little bit about what it looks like when they're not listening. What, what are they doing? I think that uh, they have their catalog of products that mm-hmm. we make and they sell, and they're and what they're doing with that is saying to the customer, "This is what you need," versus listening to the customer, mm-hmm. and from that, having a conversation with the customer to better understand what they need, and then see if we can fulfill that need or not. Great. So, what you'd like them to be doing is spending more time. Uh, gathering the needs and understanding the customer better. Yes. Before they start giving solutions. Yeah, I think uh, I, I once heard someone say uh, that God gave us two ears and one mouth, and that's the ratio that our words Lovely. said and the words listened to should Great. follow that ratio. Do you have a sense of why that's happening? I do not. Okay, and then we might have a conversation about that because still there are a couple of. I mean, I I have so much listening stuff I can go on and on about how improv helps listening it's you know like yay improv is so great for exercising listening muscles in reality I don't really know yet if the problem is people just don't know how to listen or if they're afraid to listen or if they're getting incentivized not to do that you know we can do a listening workshop but if people are getting you know, punished for not making sales really, really quickly, then I can do all the listening workshops in the world and they're not going to. So hopefully I can build a relationship with that client so that we really understand what's going on. And if we're going to do a workshop for them, it's going to be the right workshop and a workshop is the right solution and all that. So let's go, go back again a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about the path. Yeah. So you, you had one or you had just one engagement with your very first uh, client where you went and taught a, a course or a class. Well, and then yeah. what happened? Sort of walk me down that yeah. path. So in fact, now it's a business. Now it's a right. Now so it's in, a real live business. Right. So in fact, what happened was I was working with an improvisational theater company in New York called uh, Freestyle Repertory Theater, and teaching classes for them and sort of building this line of business, doing improv for organizations. And then went back to graduate school to get an organizational uh, degree in organizational psychology. And is that because you sort of saw the need that this was missing or uh, it was a skill that I needed if I was going to pursue this further, i.e. the corporate version? You know, this was was in the late 90s. The the field of applied improvisation, the name, the field, the idea of it didn't exist. it wasn't that it was needed per se, as much as I felt like I want to know what I'm doing. I was clear that I was doing organizational development and training work, and I wanted to be a professional person doing that, not just an improviser going in and doing improv training in organizations. And uh, and I was also sort of getting clear that if I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to be a full time actor. So. I didn't really know what the path was going to be at that point. I thought maybe I'd go work for, it was Anderson at the time, now it's Accenture. So I went back and got this master's, and part of it was I just wanted to test. As I say, I wanted to test if I was selling snake oil. So was there was there a, I'm interested in the, in the decision yeah. To, to, yeah. to change, okay, coming to the realization, I'm not going to be an actor, or I'm, I'm not going to make a full-time living right, doing that. Right, right. Did that just happen in a moment? I mean, was there a mm-hmm. moment of clarity, or did something did something happen yeah. that 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 made you realize that, or was it much of a longer process? It I'm always a, interested in how yeah. people make these decisions. It was a bunch of threads that were happening at the same time. So I think it was connected to my day job as well. So 
as I say, I was teaching English as a second language in this refugee relocation organization and then training trainers and supervising that program. As part of that super, as part of that job, there was someone who came in to give us supervisory training, to train us as supervisors. And he, for whatever reason, took me under his wing. Actually, I can tell you why. One of the reasons, I think, was two reasons. One is I was just interested in the topic, and Mm -hmm. I think I was sitting up front and looking bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and asking questions and being a good student. The other was he gave us some coaching on how to write up performance uh, evaluations. Not evaluate. Well, evaluations, but more than that, like if people, um, you know, like pips, like performance improvement plans. And I'm laughing because I also remember that what was happening while I was in this job was that the teachers, most of whom were out of work actors and artists and writers and graduate students, decided that they were going to unionize while I was their manager. No, it wasn't just me as their manager, but yes. for whatever reason, someone came in and decided they were going to unionize this, which was ridiculous. I mean, I'm all for unions. I'm really pro-union. But these were like, you know, part-time people. And, and they really made a mess for themselves because they had all this flexibility and everything was great. And then they succeeded in unionizing, which made it all very rigid. And, you know, I think it was a much worse situation for them after they unionized. But they went out on strike Mm -hmm. for six weeks. So I got supervisory training, sort of before, during, and after. And he he was a, so he was sort of the consultant who came in and gave us the supervisory training. We hit it off. He took me under his wing and eventually uh, brought me along to do some, to assist him on a people skills training course that he was doing at the Cornell uh, Labor and Industrial Relations course, extension course Mm -hmm. in New York City. So that was the first uh, training course that I did of the kinds that I do now, sort of under his auspices, a guy named Cal Sutliff. So I'd already kind of put my toe in the water in terms of organizational development work, and I had and was doing that as my day job. I then started doing this applied improv work, and again, I really just wanted to test, like, is there anything to this? People are telling me it's useful. I'm kind of making it up. I'm doing these improv exercises and then doing these sort of debriefs about, okay, so here are the principles of improv. How do they apply to your world? We talk about yes and, you know, what does that mean for your team? But I figured there's got to be research on this. There's got to be, you know, People must be studying yes. team building and creativity. I should know what I'm talking about. So that that's what it was. And I figured if I'm not going to be an actor, I'll probably be an OD person or a trainer or a consultant. So, uh, so how long have you had this business? Uh, I left graduate school and went to work for one guy who had a consultancy right out of grad school in 97 and then left him and went for another guy and after that I've been pretty much independent with various incarnations of this business since 2000. Wow and so give me a feel for how big the business is sort of number of engagements a year or just just a couple of Mm -hmm. metrics that our audience might help be helpful for them to understand. So like I say it's sort of two businesses in one so I'll tell you this version of the business uh, my my husband and I merged our improv company, Mopco, and Coppet, the consultancy. A couple of years ago, we bought a building here in downtown Schenectady. We have four full-time employees and probably a dozen contractors globally. Uh, and we're somewhere between a half a million dollars and a million mm-hmm. dollars. Okay, and and so b- before we dive into to Mopco, I'm still sort of on yep. the on the training piece now for yep. for, for businesses. Uh, how do people find you? 
How, how does that pro, how does that process work? Yes, um, we're mostly mostly referrals. Uh, we present at conferences, which I think is the way we get most of our new business. Yes. So, what type of conference do you present at? Um, and then I would say the the other thing is the book, and so I wrote a book that I think is the other way people find us, and we have a podcast. Um, there are a lot of professional kinds of conferences that we present at. So ATD is the big training and development conference. It used to be ASTD, but now it's ATD, the, uh, which is the Association for Talent Development Conference. It's a big conference. So this would be attended primarily by folks in human by resources? internal training and development folks for yeah. large organizations. It's a giant conference every year. I think this year, uh, this, this year or last year, Barack Obama was a keynote speaker. Um, you know, it's a big conference. Uh, last year I was at the... Um, other big conference name I'm not going to remember, which is in Boston. I'll find it for you. Yeah, that's all right. Um, we can put that in the show notes if you send we'll that. We'll put it in me. the show yeah. notes. Uh, there's a there is now um, an international conference for applied improvisers. So the Applied Improv Network Conference, which is global. We were in Paris last year. This year coming up, we'll be in at Stony Brook uh, in association we're partnering with the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. Okay. So, so these are sort of people that are self-selecting, go into these conferences, mm-hmm. and, and they're sort of thinking, and you make a presentation, or there's others that make yes. presentations about this topic, and they say, oh, well, maybe yep, I can yes. use that within yes. our business. And then, so those are the big sort of industry conferences, but then we also go to all sorts of specific industry conferences, groups that ask us to come. So um, SUNY has us come to all sorts of their professional conferences. Industry groups ask us to come to their conferences. We just, for New York State on the aging, just asked to have us at a conference, you know, so. So I got to think this would be, hearing you talk about this and how it can be used would be sort of the great, you know, dinner speaker or lunch speaker. Exactly. We do that for groups all over, all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 uh, do you see that business? The demand continues to it's grow. People's receptivity hugely growing. So this is the thing about applied improv, and um, you know we haven't done a lot of talking about the actual principles and how they apply or why people are attracted to improv. But what used to be very weird and aberrant is now, you know, mainstream. So the Wall Street Journal has written about this, and the New York Times, and Forbes, and. You know, Inc. Everybody's writing about this because a couple of big, you know, sort of celebrity companies are late to the game, but making it famous. The Applied Improv Network has six thousand members globally. Uh, The idea that, um, you know, the idea everybody wants to be more flexible, everybody wants to be more creative, everybody has to adapt and innovate faster, everybody needs to be, you know, working collaboratively more, everybody needs to be working across difference and, you know, adapting and being resilient. So going to a place where people have worked on exercising those muscles and, you know, working that makes sense. Yes. And so how does... Mopco fit into all of this, right? So Mopco, as I say, is our performing wing of the of the company. So it's actually we have is actually the umbrella organization, and then we have the performance side of the business. And Coppet is the applied organizational development so side is, of the business. Is is that a place where I go if I want to learn how to be in, in an improv theater, or is it a place where I go to watch? Improv Both of those things. So we have shows every weekend and every Friday and Saturday night. We have shows in downtown Schenectady if you're in town. And we have classes, open enrollment classes, where we don't talk a lot about the applied side of it. Sure. Uh, but we, you know, you just come and take class. Most of our students are not planning to be performing improvisers, you know, uh, but. They're curious. Yeah, they want to play, they want to have fun. We have students, 
we have students who come for health reasons. We have you know students with serious life-threatening illnesses who come because they say it makes them laugh. We have you know people who are cripplingly shy and say this helps them with that. Yes. We have students who want to meet people and get dates, uh, and we have professional people who who are you know want to help their public speaking skills, and we have just people who do it as a hobby. You want to play? Yeah. Now you've also written a, a few books. Yeah, uh, one main book in a couple of editions called Training to Imagine with a long subtitle, Practical Improvisational Theater Techniques for Trainers and Managers to Enhance Creativity, Teamwork, Leadership, and Learning. The reason it has a long title and sort of unwieldy title is because back in the early 2000s when it was written, the publisher wouldn't put improv in the main title because it was too weird and he said nobody will buy it now now that's ridiculous every there's a new book out called applied improvisation which hit amazon bestseller lists quickly that i'm contributing to the next volume of there's already two more volumes coming out um so that's a real shift in the industry so that's great so a consulting business uh improv theater business an author uh, you've certainly done a lot of stuff. Is there what advice? What advice would you give to someone who's thinking about changing their sort of career? You know, you were at, we talked about that point in your life where you said, "Okay, this path I'm on, I'd like to go explore a different path." Is there advice that you give to somebody who's sort of? contemplating that but not quite at the point where they're ready to jump out of the airplane so to speak I look back and when I tell this story where I think about the story of my life it all makes immense sense it doesn't feel like a break so it's a continuous journey it really is it feels like everything that I did leading up to where I am now was what prepared me to do what I'm doing now. But at some point... Even though at the time, it felt like a huge break. Right. And if... And I didn't know that I was preparing for this. I didn't know this this is where I would come up. I think that we... It all... And it almost feels like... What do they say now? Everybody's going to have five careers or something. So you're going to make a break. You're going to do something different. I think that the skills and knowledge and expertise you have, muscles you have, are applicable to whatever you apply them to. Defining yourselves rigidly as this is what I do or who I am is misguided to begin with. Don't do that. Say, where am I going to use my strengths or my talents now? Yeah, one of, one of the things that I think about while you were saying that is this notion of we're going to have five different careers, so to speak, and either you make that decision for when those happens or someone will make it for you. Right. And this notion of these opportunities present themselves to us and then we make a choice and a decision on whether we pursue that opportunity or not. And I yeah. think that's that's the real, to me, the intriguing part of, of, of different people's lives is you made a choice to, to, to go do that consulting, that yeah. very first corporate gig, so to speak, right? Yeah. You could have said, nah, I'm not interested in that, but you made that choice. Yeah. And, and it, it blossomed into a very important aspect of your life and, and, and what you've been doing for a significant portion of it. Whereas if you wouldn't have made that choice, who knows, you might be a famous TV improv producer. Right, or more likely I would not, right? More likely I'd be a waitress. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the, the much bigger leap of faith for me, for us, was buying a building, hiring people, that was a much, much riskier, bigger shift than shifting careers. And the growth of our business is about, is coming, has come over the last year. We've grown 
each year for the last two or three years. And we will again. Mm -hmm. That's, which is a little ridiculous. It's a little hard to manage. Um, But that's because we're taking risks. It's because we're living sort of by this improv principle of jump and justify. (laughs) Not sure I, I, I don't know that our financial planner would always recommend that to us. But that's why we're doing well. Um, and those are the risky things, not saying, hey, I'm going to make a career shift from, right? Well, it's a different type of risk, I would, it, I would, I would maybe. propose. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Some individuals, that's very, that seems not yeah. risky at all. And what you did is like super risky. So it's, it's, many times I find that it's sort of a perspective. Or maybe I'm totally lying, because maybe it's just that that other risk is way behind me in my rearview mirror, and because I I do know that I should take that back. I know that when I that my entire identity and sense of self worth was tied yes. to being an actor, and when I decided that I was not going to identify as an actor anymore, I was giving up a huge amount of there was huge ego attached to yes, that. Yes, yes, so yes. So I. I I should probably not be so sanguine. Well, about as that. as one of my previous guests, Darren Janelle, said uh, when we were talking about risk, he said, "Look, we're in the United States. No matter what you do, you're probably not going to starve. So if that's your baseline, doing these things is really not all that risky." Well, if we're in a position where we're not worried about where our next meal comes from, then we're already extremely privileged. Absolutely. And we're we're making, you know, we're lucky to be worrying about the things we're worrying about. I also realize just as we're talking that for whatever it's worth, you know, when I say I'm not an actor anymore, I own a theater and I'm performing much more now than I ever was before. So maybe one of the things to think about is uh, you know, what is it you really want to be doing? Like, where really is your passion? What really lights you up? And are you doing that? So what are you hanging on to because of some idea of what you love and what you're creating versus the reality of what you love and what you're doing versus what you're going to really be giving up? I was being an actor, but I wasn't acting. And... Now, that's not what I lead with being, but I'm actually doing much more of that yes. activity. Yes. Um, I think one of the common themes of, of everyone I've talked to in this podcast is this notion of they've all been successful in taking their passion or something they really enjoy doing and turning it into a key element of how they make their, a living and what they do for, for work. I don't think you can be an entrepreneur and not be all consumed by what you're doing, right? That idea of like you're doing something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Well, what's actually true is that you're never going to not be working. Like we're working all the time. We never don't think about work. We never get a day off and that's fine, but we never ever do. And it's not always fun, but It's like having children. It's just like having a child. It's all the time. You don't take time off from it. So you really better love it. Kat, that was a wonderful way to end the podcast. I really appreciate that. Thanks for taking time out of your busy day to come and chat with me. Uh, It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. It's delightful. Sure. Well, that was a real interesting conversation. Uh, with Kat Coppett. She has actually two businesses, as you heard in that uh, discussion. Uh, Coppett and Company, which is a consulting business where she uh, works with uh, businesses in teaching them a whole set of listening skills and uh, other types of skills. And then she has Map- Mopco, uh, which is an improv theater. So, uh, Mike, what was the biggest thing that sort of struck you in uh, our conversation? Well, as you mentioned in the open, that I think this was a really cool uh, endeavor related to Kat's passion uh, that was originally kind of a non-business type of endeavor. And then she saw the business and commercial applications of it. 
Um, she saw the hole. She saw the opportunity. Some people call it the blue ocean, right? But she saw this need um, and built a business around trying to, to fill that need. Um, we've seen this in a lot of our, our guests so far in this podcast. In general, how do you figure out where these opportunities exist? How do these people who are doing something unrelated see the business application of it? What's your take on this, Bela? Boy, I think that's one of the, the greatest skills um, that entrepreneurs have. And it's, I think, one of the greatest, it's a great skill that's difficult to learn. If you listen to the way she described it, right, she started, uh, first went, went to school to, to be a performing artist, uh, was off Broadway for a while, came to the conclusion that wasn't working great, uh, started doing improv, uh, hoping that it would help her sort of improve her acting skills, then started teaching improv. And it was teaching improv mostly to other people who want to be in the performing arts. But she also had some students who were just sort of doing it as a hobby. And one day, one of those students said, hey, I, I wish the people I work with <laughs> were as open and as close as we are in this improv group. And could you come do a session for us? And I think it's, you know, 95% of the people would say, no, I don't do that. I, I do my improv teaching here at this in, improv troupe. That's what I do. And it's the, it's the person who's willing to take a step through that door, not knowing what's on the other side, uh, is, the, is to me one of the real definitions of a true good entrepreneur. And that's what she demonstrated. She said, hmm, I should check this out. And, uh, and she did, and it's turned into her business. So I, I think that's a, that's a skill that I don't know how you learn it other than sort of when those opportunities present themselves, number one, you have to recognize them. And then number two, you need to act on them. And, and the easy thing always to do is to say, no, no, nope, not interested, or I'm not, I don't do that. Uh, that's not my wheelhouse. We don't do those things. Uh, but, but you do it. And many of those actually blossom into uh, large parts of your business. Bela, guess what? Yeah, what? She improvised, right? She used her imp- <laughs> You're right. She used those improv skills to develop a business. So it actually is a really cool meta type of example. Um, you know, she's she saw this this opening, and even though it wasn't in the game plan, she ran with it, right? She listened to the remember the rules she said, right? You listen to what the other person says, and then you play off it. She listened. She was open minded. She listened. She accepted. She didn't reject. And then she played off it. You know, you're absolutely right, Mike. This is a great example of, of that improv skill helping you. Uh, so when someone says something, you don't say no, and you don't say but, you say and. I like it. So that's okay. That's great insight. There's a, there's a takeaway. Yeah. Um, the other thing that she did I liked is she when she was talking about the business with you, and you were trying to get her to explain kind of what it is that she does, that she differentiated, since she differentiated around the value of improv, and it meant different things to different people uh, or to different customers. And I thought that was really cool. So um, she had the core focus, but she customized for each client kind of around that core focus. I think it was a really interesting way to get to the, the, the um, her value proposition and her business model was the idea that she took these core ideas and then applied them to each different cust, uh, uh, client based on their individual specific needs. And it was a great example where she had you doing improv, right, with the example of how the company that had salespeople that didn't listen to the customers. That was improv right there. But it was a neat example of how she took her improv skills and then customized it to meet the needs of a potential client. And I, and I think when you're in certain types of businesses uh, like she is, which is fundamentally consulting business, and she's doing something that's I would say probably a, a fairly good percentage of companies, you know, when, when the boss says, okay, everybody get together at three o'clock Friday afternoon, we're going to do some improv stuff. Most people go like, what the heck is this about? You're just wasting my time. So, and, and her and I talked about that and that's a barrier you got to break down. So I think her having the skill to break that barrier down and get people engaged, but also you have to sort of understand the context that sh- that you as a consultant are walking into that company. You got to understand what the environment is and what the challenges are going to be. 
because there's going to be some number of individuals in that organization, particularly, again, when you're in a consulting business, as she is, that are, are not going to be as open as you would like them to be uh, to what you're about to do. So that's why I think this customization uh, and listening to the customer first, understanding what their, what their problems are, and the problem they state initially may not actually be the problem they're trying to solve. So that also takes a real skill. And here again, playing off what you said earlier, Mike, I think this improv skill that she has helps her do that. Exactly. Um, you know, though, it sounds to me like so many organizations that I've been around, and I think you you too, Bela, um, that are resistant to change, that are resistant to trying new things. And I like this idea of improv as a way to uh, get over some of those boundaries of, of these um, barriers to change that, that, that people put up for good reasons, for very human reasons. Um, but it's neat. Um, I think that her perception of risk was really interesting at the, toward the end when, you know, you asked her about taking such a risk and she's like, Oh no, it wasn't a risk at all. But then she kind of brought in this idea of self-identification and ego and, and worth uh, self-worth and tying this all in with the entrepreneurial process. And maybe it's her master's in psychology, but it was neat to hear themes that we've heard many times so far in our podcast with our guests um, that she was really able to lay those out with a lot of clarity. Um, what did you think about that? What do you think about this kind of the relationship between risk and um, your own ego and your own self, self-worth and self-identification? You think there's something there or do you think that's just talk? No, I think, I think there's something there. Um, you know, all the decisions we make, uh, deciding to walk through a door or not walk through a door, you know, i.e. check out a new opportunity or not, uh, it, it's a real complicated sort of decision process that's subconscious and it's built upon everything that makes us up. So your ego, your experience, your, your self-confidence, your, your willingness to try new things, all of those things kind of stir around in that cauldron. And I, I just think that I, I don't know how to articulate it really crisply, but the one thing I will say is that I think it's a common thread, maybe described in different ways, through all of the guests that we've had on this podcast. They talk about it different ways. They, they approach it differently. But this notion of, of being, being sort of driven in a, in, towards a, a goal, but oftentimes unable to clearly articulate what that goal is, right? It's sort of just sort of being driven. And this notion of that it is a journey. And, and the, the fun part here is the journey. And it's not necessarily the goal. And, and so that if you're focused on the journey, the journey continues forever. If you're focused on a goal, if you get the goal, then what? So I think that's, I don't know, that's sort of how it rattles around in my brain. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, Bill. And uh, it is, um, I think, great how she talked about her passion and her personal journey and um, that she called this all-consuming and compared it to having children or whatever, that you have to love it and you do it and you don't really take a break from it because this is your life. So, yeah, I think that's a neat way of putting it is, is that it's this pathway that, that you go down. Um, it relates to your passion and everything that you've done in your life to date. And it comes out in, in some way. Um, and in this case, it came out in the form of kind of two related businesses um, that are thriving in Schenectady, New York, which I think is, is, is cool. So I thought, yeah, great guest. Um, thanks for finding her and bringing her in. And uh, it was great to talk about it with you, Bela. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed getting to know her and having a conversation uh, with her. You know, it's like on a lot of these conversations we have, um, I'm just always amazed by uh, what people can do, and and these are not world famous individuals. They're they're folks that you run into every day, and uh, when you sit down and have a conversation with them, um, it's always very impressive to see uh, the various different things that people can accomplish. So agreed. We, I think that's an, oops, agreed. I think that's a nice way to wrap it up, Bela. That uh, hopefully the people that are listening out there can use this as um, motivation, some tools to figure out what your passion is, and whether it's changing careers or doing a side business or just reframing what you do every day is kind of finding that un- unconventional path. And uh, 
and doing something that's uh, rewarding and valuable to you. Yeah, agreed. So folks, uh, thanks for listening to this episode. Um, you can find us on all of the popular podcast distribution systems. And uh, if you like us, uh, we'd love to uh, get a favorable review from you uh, or a thumbs up. That helps uh, promote the podcast. That's sort of the way the podcasting world works. The more reviews we get, the more likes we get, uh, the more popular it gets in the various different rankings and the more people that uh, can discover us. So thanks again for listening and uh, signing off. This is Bela from uh, Clarkson University. And this is Mike from Münster University of Applied Sciences in, you guessed it, Münster, Germany. I like to say Münster. I'm getting better at it. It's got an umlaut, you know. Yes, those umlauts are tricky. <laughs> they get you every time. Yep. All right. Bye, Bella. See you in a couple of weeks. Yep. See you, Mike. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.